Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. This is episode 27. Perlman wrote of us, the civilized humans who are animating Leviathan, quote, the spirit shrivels up inside them. They become nearly empty shells. As the generations pass, the individuals within the cadaver's entrails become increasingly like the springs and wheels they operate, so much so that sometime later they will appear as nothing but springs and wheels. But they never become altogether reduced to automata. People never become altogether empty shells. A glimmer of life remains in the faceless Ensis and Zeks, who seem more like springs and wheels than like human beings. They are potential human beings, end quote. These people, and the life within them, are the brilliant. You are the brilliant. Oh, that was very inspirational. Yeah, right? You're holding hands with all the listeners. We've talked again and again about how we need more positivity in the show, a little... A more zazz, not so much uh, this sucks, that sucks, this is going nowhere. So. A little more zazz. A little more zazz. <laughs> Very good. Okay, what did you want to get into first? Well, I'm, I'm happy to, to go with the, the lineup as okay. you've uh, written it down. Yeah. We, do, we do take notes as hard as it is to believe um, <laughs> prior to the show, but usually the notes are, are uh, written by Bellamy, and I'm supposed to sort of conform to them in a, in a lockstep manner. And um, uh, part of the joy of, of this project is is as I veer from the path, watching Bellamy's tightly um, uh, managed choreography sort sort of fall apart. And yeah. you know, the composer John Zorn believed you create a structure and then you improvise within it. So absolutely, <laughs> that's what we're doing. I did want to briefly comment on the presidential elections. I'm opposed to this, by the way. <laughs> Just very briefly comment on it. Because it's something I've been paying attention to, and um, and I guess you know I became interested in anarchism. Right, uh, I guess I, I started to literally call myself an anarchist only a few months before Obama became a meme. You know, right before he became someone that uh, people actually knew the name of, and it was I guess uh, a bludgeoning right off the bat to see the recuperative power of the election because I was dismayed to see basically. All of my friends, except for the extremely apolitical ones, absolutely got the fever. And, um, you know, I would try very unsuccessfully to have these conversations about, you know, this guy's actually only a thing right now because he suddenly got a bunch of money from the powers that be. And I guess um, eight years later, you know, it feels like that all over again with this idea that somehow the individual personality characteristics of, of the potential presidents are something that we should care about and we should be really concerned about sort of unpleasant racist or misogynistic verbiage coming from them and that that is something that anarchists should care about. That's it? That's it. Brief comment. Okay. That's very funny. <laughs> I, um... You know, I, I, I do pay atten attention to mainstream news enough to sort of have opinions about 
uh, the game, you know, the, the particular Game of Thrones that's happening in oh my uh, God. 2016. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I guess I just don't think it's that interesting. I mean, e- even when it comes out, it came up this week at the, uh, at the study group. It comes up most weeks, and you know, more or less. I'm, <laughs> Even when I'm, I'm not there, <laughs> uh, I'm and I'm happy to 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 boo the person that brings it up because it just, you know, it just constrains even your conversations when you uh, because it's really just a like it's a just an example of something that just everyone has a half-assed opinion about, myself included. And you should be happy then that I kept it to a forty-five second statement. So I did want to talk about the ITS communique. Um, the communique was very much uh, an effort to, I guess, be in dialogue with people, even though they sort of maintain that they don't care. Yeah, and it's also funny that they're they're communicating like once a week right now. Is it that often? It wow. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to wonder: is it is it just one person that then sort of speaks for the group, or are they actually writing as committee? But the specifics of this communique were a response to the criticism they get for "quote unquote" indiscriminate attacks. And a good part of it was emphasizing that what they perceive as the their goal and the true definition of the indiscriminate attack isn't attacking Joe Rando on the street. It's just them saying that when they have a target, whether it's material or symbolic, they are not concerned about the possibility of collateral damage. And you know, a certain amount of it was this indictment of the pro-revolutionary person saying, do you really think that there's not going to be the same kind of collateral damage? And, you know, really, I would say that almost certainly there'd be far, far more. Um, And I'll just read a couple quotes from them here. Everyone is open to express their anger when they read our stuff. Many closeted U.S. anarcho-Zerzanians, anarchist news, to name one example, have done so. The last example in particular censored ITS communiques, since many on the site consider us, quote, reactionaries. We don't bring this up because we are bitter and are playing the victim. We're bringing it up so that these blogs don't put on airs of being so tolerant of divergent opinions. If they are indeed so triggered, quote-unquote, by our politically incorrect terrorist and mafioso communiques, they'd be doing us a favor by not publishing them. As we stated above, anyone can disagree with the indiscriminate eco-extremism that we advocate, For example, the so-called Polino Scarfo revolutionary cell has done so in February of this year when it indirectly mentioned the ITS attack in Chile. To reiterate, it's healthy to express criticism and disagreements, but insinuations are a whole other story. That's not being particularly badass, to be honest. Maybe they should have signed their communique Leo Tolstoy anarcho-Christian cell instead of what they signed. It also seems that memory escapes these supposed anarchos, or they suffer temporary amnesia at the mention of the person who was the comrade of the terrorist, Severino Di Giovanni, the anarchist who blew up the Italian consulate in Buenos Aires, killing various fascists but also wounding bystanders, and who also murdered another anarchist who he had branded a fascist. I mean, <clears throat> I, I agree with that. Uh, I mean, I agree with that criticism to the, to the extent to which it's... The criticism of Anus in the past was that uh, Anus were free speech absolutists, and so I think that Anus has stopped being so much of uh, that. I think that the that the argument that they're not exactly whatever they wouldn't care about anyways, but it's important for for anarchist news to publish things that are considered anarchist, and because ITS makes it so clear that they're not anarchists, even mm-hmm. though obviously they're extremely engaged in the anarchist conversation, so much so that they're talking about anarchist news censoring them. Um, 
So it really has to do with you know what's your definition of anarchism, and 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 uh, it's very clear that that a lot of readers of of anarchist news, uh, you know, have a, a highly attenuated definition of what an anarchist is, and, yeah. and for them, obviously, ITS is, does not qualify not only because they don't don't use the term themselves, although they have in the past, but because they. You know, it's some it's some lefty version of the, of the non-aggression principle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did want to to ask. I guess just what do you think about this whole indiscriminate attack thing? When I guess I'll do my spiel first. One few years ago, right when um, Ryder and I started doing free radical radio, we got a lot of flack for basically talking about ITS in what was perceived as a generally positive way, and one of the things that I was saying was that the, you know there's this kind of fetishization of the positive action over the negative one, and that by generally being a passive person, you are condoning and participating in an incredible amount of violence on a daily basis, and not really. But you're so far removed from it in uh, in most parts of this country, and that I was saying, you know, the fact that they incidentally, and I think they made it clear unintentionally, were harming people who could be perceived as innocent bystanders seemed like a double standard to me. Um, and, or at least in particular, the, the, the sort of horror uh, at the idea that came across as a bit sanctimonious to me. I'm not remembering the details of what we were talking about. This is um, the, the fact that they said, I think this is about two years ago, I might be wrong, that they, when the mailman opened one of their bombs, they said very clearly, we didn't intend this, but we also don't really care. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of of horror and finger-wagging, basically the fact that they said that they didn't care, which was funny to me because I felt that if they had just said, oh, we totally didn't intend that and we feel shitty about it, there would not have been almost any condemnation. It was was literally the fact that they said, we don't really think there are innocent bystanders in this world. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is some... Some modern version of Stalin's old canard, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, when one person dies or is injured, it's tragedy. Right. And when a million do, it's... What did I say? It's a statistic? Yeah. Yeah. And so the kind of misery that we're talking about or the kind of violence that we talk about as being how most experience their daily life. Because you, you can know. imagine Joe Rando getting bombed and that being a horrific thing. Yeah. You can't so much think about what's happening in Foxconn to make phones because you've never been there. And but I, so a couple, a couple, about a week ago, I was uh, called out as being sort of like party to ITS <laughs> and whatever. It was done on the internet. It was done in the context of Facebook. So, so on some level, like, you know, take it as you will. But it was also done by somebody who uh, self-defines as an anarcho-transhumanist and was basically sort of drawing the line in the sand of, you know, us versus them or they versus me. And um, <clears throat> and so right now I'm feeling a little sensitive about talking about ITS just in the sense that, like, I can talk about their activity from the perspective of someone who understands why they're making the choices they are and, and am sympathetic to, to many of those choices. But ultimately, I don't uh, condone what ITS is doing because I don't... I don't think that they're the, they themselves are exhibiting a sort of like interesting or free activity, and perhaps more pointedly, I I don't think that they're helping the collapse of civilization. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that a thousand <clears throat> pipe bombs will uh, will end civilization. 
especially a thousand pipe bombs at people, because if there's one thing that people have demonstrated that they're very good at uh, reproducing, it's, it's more people. Um, I mean, you know, as much as we might talk about a world war as being a great population decliner, I think the numbers, if we, you know, put a graph on the wall, actually show quite the opposite. And, you know, the baby boomers made up for the people who who were lost during the course of the war and then some. And um, but the, the the more clear point being that that I don't think that. Yeah, I, I, I guess they have a hopefulness in, in, in what their activity is that I just don't share. And, you know, it's not that I that I want to be pessimistic by, like, that I just always want to sort of have, reach pessimistic answers or conclusions to all to all information that, that I, I learn about. But um, but I, what ITS is doing is, is of a type, and it's, it's not so different from... Uh, there was actually just a comment I saw this morning on E-News that, that talked about, you know, it's not like a thousand windows breaking and a thousand newspaper boxes dragged into the street will have any different of a net result from the from a I guess a pro revolutionary perspective. So so for me it's it's sort of like the question of ITS is a question about what kind of conversations we want to be having. And on that front, I'm very interested in ITS because they're trying to have a type of conversation that as much as I might disagree with it, they're they're doing with their bodies in a way that I respect a lot more than anarcho-transhumanists who tell me that I'm responsible for ITS being popular in North America because I'm I'm party to uh, to, to having a conversation about them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which again is just uh, you know, if you don't do the sort of finger wagging, then you're complicit. Yes, yeah. I guess to reply to you saying that there's a hopefulness. I mean, you could say. Maybe it's a way of saying that there's a contradiction between their rhetoric and their action, because their rhetoric is all about how they reject the idea of victory wholesale, and it seems almost that they, for them, this idea of attacking fills an existential void, that mm. it's meaningful to be, as they say, at war with civilization, even if they're not successful in any measurable way. Yeah, well, I mean, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Because you're saying there's a hopefulness in the sense that the idea being if I kill X, Y, Z, and Q... At a certain point, it's going to have a measurable effect because you know, maybe certain researchers will be taken out, and it will discourage others from taking part in that kind of thing. And then you know, eventually, you have some kind of—I mean, I, I guess it's a little bit of that, like step one, kill people; step two, question mark; step three, profit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, you could say that this was done by the Russian nihilists back in the day, right? That they were trying to assassinate key people in this idea of. Well, they're they're keep. They were a bit more ambitious. Mm-hmm. They did kill the czar. Yeah, but there's a, a way in which you could say that's a very measurable point of success. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the question, as you were saying, is it uh, if so long as you have these structures in place and you have a high level of human breeding going on and a corresponding amount of specialization, are those always going to be filled by a new pack of meat? You're asking. Yeah. I'm saying, is that what you're saying? Is the the hopefulness is the uh, c- lies in the capacity to ignore that? Well, the conceit of civil society and perhaps of of a liberal version of progress is that it's fighting a type of proxy war against this sort of like the barbarians at the gate, which yeah. ITS absolutely represent. Yeah. And and part of what the liberal fear is is that um, you know when one falls off the wall that they're not replaced with an archer, but they're replaced by a spear thrower. Mm-hmm. And that perhaps at some point the spear throwers are replaced by rock throwers. Mm-hmm. 
or to put it more modernly, uh, the biotechnician is replaced by a gardener. And sounds nice, <laughs> right? No, I mean, I mean, I mean, there there is some sort of social science math uh, uh, happening here on both sides, uh-huh. right? Because because if you're going to argue strongly for ITS, you would say that they're in a linear way fighting against the instincts of progress, mm. and um, and you know when you have a such a precarious civil uh, civil society as Mexico, it could very well be that they're much closer to the brink than we imagine the U.S. to be. Yeah, but but a lot of what that looks like. I mean, one thing that we don't see a lot of in, in, in any of the translations is what's the hunt for ITS like. Yeah, there was the only thing I can think of. There was one bit where they were bragging about how none of them had been caught. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in the if this were to be happening, anything like this to be happening in the U.S. context, mm-hmm. all we'd be hearing about would be the hunt. Like in right. other words, we'd still be publishing their communiques from the side of a news. But the outside world would just be fascinated with the, with what the hunt looks like, right. you know. I mean, similar to Kaczynski and how he got caught by basically there being uh, a very public manhunt uh-huh. and and well, his brother eventually. Well, it, there was a sort of request that was sort of so big that it, it was beyond counterculture, right? A big request of like, if anyone recognizes any of this verbiage, please tell us. Mm. And then his brother stood up. So if his brother never stood up, there's a chance he never would have been caught, right? Which that you know sort of gives one pause to think, but it's not exactly like like the systems that we're talking about desiring to, to slow down are more powerful than any of the individuals getting getting tapped. Yeah, and then there was one little um, more of a nitpicky philosophical point that caught my attention where they were replying to someone who was saying that they had a moralistic view and saying it seems that NT, who's the person that they're talking to has gotten his information about ITS all mixed up, as he has written that it is a contradiction to be pushing the amoral debate of the nihilists from the editorial house Netzhevshina, but at the same time have a moral rule of, quote, nature is good, civilization is evil, end quote. NT should be reminded that ITS has went through many phases. If the group defended that Naturian motto in 2011, it should be clarified that the ITS of today is different. It's been years since we've utilized the phrase, so I hate to break it to you, NT, but your criticism is a day late and a dollar short, which I'm surprised that that idiom exists. <laughs> Might have been a translator. Yeah, yeah. ITS no longer utilizes this motto, as wild nature works on an extra moral level. Yeah, I have a hard time believing it. Um, I mean, they definitely seem to have a, a really basic dualistic view of the world, and they are clearly positioning themselves on one side of that dualism. And they sometimes even talk about I mean, wild nature not only as this sort of entity, uh, as something that can be picked out as separate from the rest of the world, but also sometimes even, I think somewhat playfully, definitely nonetheless doing it, anthropomorphize it, and and talk about being for the uh, wild nature that tramples over civilization. And I just think when you exist in that kind of manichaeism, that there's a moral resonance about that, and that's totally fine. Uh, it's different than my view of the world. I respect and understand it to some degree, but uh, I don't think you can sort of play the, you know, we're amoral and yet we're for the good and against the bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a good way to summarize what their position is. But uh, I will say that it's, that the, that the hard question that does come in response to, like, <clears throat> if, you, if you go into a room and declare yourself to be amoral, right. Uh, of course, the room is the room is going to respond more or less by saying "prove it." 
and there is I've yet to sort of experience even in my own thought about this a way to prove it especially to prove it against a hostile audience mm-hmm. and that and that is at sort of at the heart of uh, what ITS does that I do really respect is like they're speaking to a hostile audience yeah, full stop like yeah. um, but but the problem is is that they're speaking to a hostile audience primarily on the internet right. which means that on some level what they're what they're speaking to isn't the hostile audience, but is to basically a pack of fanboys. In other words, like the people that they're really trying to speak to are these, uh, yeah, are, are these fanboys and Rydra. Um, <laughs> and and that that to me is is the is the hard part. And, and you know, and I'll say it from my perspective too. Like, I have a variety of of hard positions that are also hard to articulate in a way that that's can be sort of convincing or even respected by a hostile audience. And I'm not exactly sure, like, what do you want to devote your time to doing? Just sort of thinking and experiencing yourself is the way that you understand yourself? Or fighting the good fight against a whole bunch of people who really aren't your people, sure. won't ha- don't have your back, uh, don't, do not have love for you in any meaningful way, but at some point you could perhaps convince them that, that your perspective is valid. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a hard question that I that I sort of, I mean, in their case, you know, when they refer to wild nature works on an extra moral level, you know, what they're basically saying is that God is a mystery, mm-hmm. and we are soldiers of God, and we embrace that mystery. Sure. And I I I sort of I get that, and I sort of even respect that. Sure. But that doesn't mean I believe in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I think a, a big part of it is their wanting to distance themselves from anything that looks like humanism. And so you know, one way to do that is to, yeah, have a uh, God that's not really looking out for you, that the God doesn't work toward the good. Right? Sure. Yeah, I respect that in a sense. On, on the internet, there's um, oftentimes there's all these artistic renditions, and recently there was an artistic rendition of like the, the Guardians of Iceland. Mm-hmm. And they are basically... Uh, you know, they're, they're sort of demigods in the Greek mythos sense of the term. Okay. Um, uh, and, you know, in, in the hierarchy of gods, there's gods, lesser gods, and demigods. And so they're demigods, and they're basically these um, uh, anthropomorphized figures of, like, the bull. Oh, okay. Like, and uh, and they're, they're really fantastic uh, uh, images. I'll try to link to them if I, if I can uh, find them again. But uh, I really, yeah, they, they were, they were great. And, so if you're looking for a fickle, uncaring god... Exactly, yeah, <laughs> the, the guardians of Iceland. So there's a story this week about how the FBI has started an initiative working with the public schools to sort of screen for persons who might be uh, drifting away from the good, drifting into an uh, antisocial perspective. Stay in school and stay focused Let the truth be your own focus then by getting the education, you'll be your own hostess. Your turn. Learning knowledge is power. Then you'll grow like a beautiful flower. You'll grow in education like a beautiful flower. You'll grow every hour. That's cool, man. You gotta stay focused. You gotta get education. That's the only way you learn. Stay in school and stay focused. And there's a lot of things that are interesting about this. I'll just uh, read this sort of FBI statement here. 
part of it. There's actually a whole report they put out that they declassified, so um, we can link to that as well. And, you know, a lot of it is sort of looks annoyingly like a brochure from someone who's trying to sell you something, but there's some interesting rhetoric in there. High school students are ideal targets for recruitment by violent extremists seeking support for their radical ideologies, foreign fighter networks, or conducting acts of targeted violence within our borders. High schools must remain vigilant in educating their students about catalysts that drive violent extremism and the potential consequences of embracing extremist beliefs. Actually, before you go on, this is a like the quintessential example of what functionalism is. <laughs> And I really, really love it because it it very much is an American sort of way to present information, you know, because, of course, the functionalism is how do we manage a, a society of 350 million people in such a way that, quote unquote, they are free. So they're free to understand what a violent ideology is. And yet the high schools are essentially going to discipline that knowledge in, in this in this very particular way, and I I, I really I think this is a, a wonderful example of like sort so of the modern way in which these things would be talked about. So, you know, first of all, the idea that high schools, which you know most of us just experienced as being a type of babysitting at uh, at worst, and and perhaps a career advancement advancement at, at best um, for a particular percentage of uh, high schoolers. And and the idea that that this, which is sort of targeted at the security guards and and administrators of of said high schools, <laughs> you know, this is like a very different presentation as to what a high school is for. Anyways, no, I mean I think this is what biopower sounds like when it's talking to you and saying, "Isn't biopower a really nice thing?" <laughs> actually, yeah. And a lot of it has the community policing resonance. Community policing was something that really caught some my interest back when I first started doing free radical radio, because it was the first time I came across it, where you know, very much the idea is let's take the brutal fist of authority that is you know, the cop punching you while you're handcuffed and just sublimate it into this gentle thing where it, it's as ideally it's as hard to notice as you know, the ocean current or the way that the wind is blowing, but nonetheless it's pushing you that way. And so, of course, the idea is to get every teacher and every sports coach and every student to be paying attention to what everyone else is doing. And if Jimmy, who always sits in the back of the class <laughs> and is reading those strange magazines, starts to catch your eye or, you know, what have you, that uh, that way we can shunt him off into having these after-school counseling meetings where we're going to talk to him and figure out, you know, why does he feel so lonely? And so the language here being, quote, Law enforcement cannot arrest its way out of violent extremism. Countering violent extremism is a shared responsibility between law enforcement, civic leaders, and their communities. Schools share in this responsibility within their local communities. Gentle language. Yeah, it's fascinating because it basically, what it's not saying is that the only way to counter violent extremism is through education. Right. Fascinating. And, um... Among the forms of violent extremism is what they call anarchist extremism. And the language here, what they believe. Anarchist extremists believe that society should have no government, laws, or police. And they are loosely organized with no central leadership. Violent anarchist extremists believe that such a society can only be created through force. That's a, that's a nice uh, uh, technique where they basically blurred violent, violence with extremism. Like, 
you know, we, of course, within anarchist circles know that uh, most anarchists do not have a particularly violent bent. Like, anarchism doesn't look like a whole bunch of people fascinated with street gangs. It looks a lot more like a bunch of people uh, fascinated with, you know, Kropotkin. And, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so this is, this is fascinating. And then uh, who or what they target... Violent anarchists, extremists usually target symbols of capitalism. Ouch. They believe to be the cause of all problems in society, such as large corporations, government organizations, and police agencies. They damage property, cause riots, and set off firebombs. In some cases, they have injured police officers. <gasps> <laughs> that last sentence just makes it sound so sad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there was elsewhere in the the FBI language was this sort of endorsement of it's okay for them to believe these things that's fine but once they act on the line yeah (laughs) yeah again i mean this is just about the formation of uh good and evil you know from a particular lens and um and of course i'm i too am against evil and for good (laughs) it's a theme for this week yeah well one of the the goals for uh the next couple episodes so so again we're we're winding down this set of uh the brian podcasts and when we restart, which my guess is going to be will be in June, the structure is going to be quite a bit different. So the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a bit about what our action plans are. You know, we've we've done a lot of conversations about our, our thoughts of, of, of what's going on. And um, so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take some risks and talk a little bit about what we're for mm-hmm. and what we think other people should do. So but before we do that, of course, I, you know, I'm going to have to give a, a variety of caveats not the least of one is that um, <clears throat> what I've experienced up till now, any time we have made an argument for a- any sort of positive program in this uh, in this project, there had there has been a certain audience of listener, and it's and it's funny how many haters are are so dedicated to li- to listening, but um, there's been a certain audience that has sort of immediately run around and. And, uh, um, I don't know, I guess just hated vocally. So for today, I'll just say that, that, um, uh, my goal is to talk about an idea that, um, actually relates to a a presentation I did a couple years back called Conflict Infrastructure. And so I'm going to talk about, about that, um, right now. I gave and about what some of my takeaways were. So to put it simply and, and, and totally unfairly, but, but to, to, to start there, for many people, they come up with a sort of plan of, of why they're involved in a radical politic and, and what they want to do with it. And the, the, there are sort of first principles that, that are worth talking about. So, um, so let's say a first principle that, 
you hear a lot of people say is that anarchism is, is about struggle, and so what anarchists should do is sort of struggle well. They should you know struggle maybe effectively, and perhaps they should convert their small s struggle to a capital S struggle and transform society in in ways that you know we traditionally talk about in the context of revolution. Another example of an anarchist first principle is to say that I, as a person that, that desires a world that is anarchistic, I want to live in that world today. In other words, I want to I want to sort of find how I can disobey the the existing order and the and the the ways in which I'm framed by the world that I live in, and convert that into something that feels like a daily life of anarchist practice. So, to put it simply, I'm more or less of the second category. I I myself want to live in an anarchist way. I want to to to, to practice my anarchism with the people around me. And as a result, I've spent the last 20 years or so of my life figuring out a way in which I could do that. So, uh, so what that looks like, and the language in which I'll talk about it, is that it looks like building and participating in infrastructure and infrastructure projects. But what I want to talk about is um, sort of an old idea, and, and I am very excited about talking about how sort of I'd like like to improve on what I experienced, but just to, to start us off, I'm going to tell a little bit of a story of where I understood North American anarchism to be at in around 1993. And so in 93, I was uh, uh, still very much learning how to be an anarchist. I was probably similar to where you're at now. Um, well, meaning that I was precocious. Big and I, word. <laughs> Time moves on. Sure, sure, sure. And um, uh, so at, at that point, I was I sort of was an experienced anti-racist person. I I I, I understood myself to be sort of like uh, perhaps more violently inclined towards a lot of my peers. And I was working at a vegan, uh, an anarchist vegan cafe mm-hmm. called the Che Cafe in San Diego. And I was there during this really sort of important time for North American anarchism because it was the it was a a, a national gathering of the love and rage mm. uh, network it happened okay. at the Che Cafe yeah. that summer so <clears throat> so I didn't exactly understand what I was seeing when it when it happened but what I know in in hindsight is that this meeting was the meeting where love and rage t- converted from being a network so the idea of sort of a loose knit mostly geographically oriented network of, 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 you know, sort of solid organizer type people, they, they basically dissolved the network during that, that weekend and converted into the love and rage revolution, uh, anarchist revolutionary federation. Mm. So, so the politics were a lot more clear then than, than even today when we, when we hear, you know, of the black rose federation or NEFAC. Love and Rage at this point, you know, people were, were very much trying to experiment with live ammunition. And so what had before been more or less a group of people who collaborated on a newspaper, but were scattered around the country um, by sort of Love and Rage units, at the end of this weekend became sort of a group that was still a, putting out a, ge- a newspaper that was based on geographical editorial uh, ship, but more pointedly was coming up with a with a what what's now called a synthesis framework to hang their politics on, 
And then the network faction, the, the group that sort of had to leave the group because of the political transformation that happened, became what's known now in hindsight as the InfoShop movement. Oh, okay. So the InfoShop that was um, in New York, I think called Blackout, or either that or Mayday, I can't remember which one it, it was, the A-Zone in Chicago and the Long Haul InfoShop in Berkeley all resulted out of this sort of political drama. So what is also interesting is is sort of like how politics moved and, and ch- changed over the following decade, because, of course, Love and Rage was pretty pretty well dissolved by 1999. It dissolved more or less six months prior to the battle in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So it, it's sort of part of the, the like, you know, the chemical composition that, that created Seattle, but was not itself an ingredient. So anyways... When I'm talking about uh, anarchist infrastructure or conflict infrastructure, what I'm really talking about is a cultural difference that I had with the people at that time, which was a sort of process-focused, passive-aggressive, reflecting um, uh, some cultural values that perhaps I would call suburban. Um, And and I'm basically saying that that, what I would like to see in in future projects is some way to... embed within the project disagreement. So in other words, figuring out ways in which um, there's something greater than whether or not we agree on a particular political point and, and really focusing a lot on how to create structures that, that can sort of do that work. Um, at the same time that I uh, very much, I guess, continue to be a proponent and, and, and think that the importance of face-to-face contact is more important than than ever now, and especially to do it outside of a commercial zone, you know, is more important than ever. Saying that in the context of being involved in the long haul info shop, which I basically would not advise anyone in the world to get involved in. And so, so this really speaks to this, to, to a contradiction of saying like, what I, what I am for is for people to, to sort of try differently experiments that we did in the nineties and that I was part of in the nineties and that I'm a part of today. Um, with while learning the lessons of the mistakes of those projects. So one thing that we're experiencing a lot today is, is a new form of uh, InfoShop. So um, we'll use Woodbine as an example. You know, Woodbine has a lot of similarities, uh, rhetoric aside, but has a lot of similarities to, to the anarchist InfoShop in the past with a couple uh, differences. One, there appears to be no interest in serving a public need. So the common... Uh, info shop tactic is to sort of have an open library and perhaps serve coffee, perhaps serve internet to an audience of strangers. Mm. And sometimes food as well. Sometimes food as well. Usually food not bombs can be associated with uh, um, info shops. And, and, and as a consequence of, of that sort of principle, many info shops became, become some version of homeless shelters and therefore basically are filled with people who have very good intentions and absolutely no talent in managing strangers, especially big, strong strangers with agendas. <clears throat> we we actually had a physical uh, assault happen at the long haul just two weeks ago, and so basically, I guess you know, as as a pro, uh, practice and a project that I think that people should be engaged with, these problems are are those are those practices, and and I actually agree with the direction that Woodbine has taken, which more or less is that their doors are only open to the people who have keys 
and for particular types of public events that more or less are political in orientation and, and are, are them sort of pushing their agenda. I absolutely agree with that that method. In their case, they're doing they they're doing it at the same time as sort of uh, as they're eschewing the anarchist label and they're sort of exhibiting behaviors that I, that I would associate with like front groups. In other words, they they sort of use terminology of of climate crisis or whatever it is that they're that they're talking about to sort of get people in the door who would not necessarily um, associate with an anarchist space. And I and I sort of I see the logic of this. I just happen to to disagree with it. Um, and you know whatever that talking about woodbine specifically isn't actually my point. But, but my point is is that they have innovated um, ar- around infrastructure in ways that I think are totally valid and, and quite interesting. Yeah, there's something, um, n- not to get too bogged down in Woodbine, but there's something a little bit disconcerting about that sort of... Um, you know, this was why I, I realized fairly quickly that I didn't want to be an organizer person, because it was always about giving information piecemeal with the idea that someone has to be slowly led, you know, mm-hmm. as if by a trail of crumbs, step by step into the... A light. Yeah, and you know, if we say too much too soon, we're going to scare them away. And now, I, I don't mean to indict a project that I don't really know that much about. It's just yeah, I, I made a rare sound, and that's why. No, I I, I think that the, that the the ideas the idea of expressing an opinion that is that should be interesting to people outside of your sort of social clique. And then seeing what happens with them, I think that's a really interesting idea. I think that you know perhaps the the Brooklyn Bronx area where they're in is a, is different than here. But when I when I see people walking on the street, um, let's say in so- South Berkeley, which is where the Long Haul is, I would say that they fall into some pretty clear categories. They're sort of like young urban people who we might otherwise call hipsters. There's sort of people who are down and out, and there's people commuting to and from work. Yeah, <laughs> and and to, and perhaps to the grocery store, which is Berkeley Bowl is fairly close to to where the long haul is. So what I don't see are like wide-eyed, curious people. What I don't see are you know political revolutionaries and in, in waitings, you know, but but their their little Maoist hat doesn't have a star on it yet because they haven't chosen what their team is. In other words, Berkeley. And the Bay Area in general is no longer a place where I would say that there's a, a whole bunch of wide-eyed dreamers. Yeah. Um, and and so instead, who you're looking for to, to sort of bring in the door probably are the young urban hipsters. And the only reason in which you're going to be successful dragging them in the door is if the slingshot organizer, which is sort of one of the, the things that inhabits the the, the front of the of the long haul, if that actually appealed to them, and I just don't believe it does. Mm-hmm. But I but I could definitely imagine, you know, if you were to clean the slate and rethink the problem from a different perspective, you know, you could find something that could appeal to them. I'm not exactly sure which direction I'd go in because it's hard not to say coffee. Right. Um, well, this is part of that sublimated power that we were talking about before. Just the structure of the sidewalk being one that you don't have passersby who are looking to be dazzled or have their interest pulled, you have passersby who are trying to get from point A to point B with as little distraction and interruption and length of time as possible. Yeah. I mean, one of the successes, though, one of the things that does draw people in 
via the, the, the long haul is a book of, is a, a little bookcase that's on the sidewalk of essentially 25 cent books. So they're throwaway books, but, but by turning them into a 25 cent book, it's more likely to bring someone in the door because, you know, they don't necessarily feel like it's appropriate to walk away with them. <laughs> and, um, and so that brings them in sort of one step closer to, to the core of, of the long haul, which is a meeting room and back. Um, yeah, but it, it is interesting to sort of think through these problems, like from the perspective, let's say, of Woodbine or from a, a perspective that isn't so, like, come and talk to us about politics. You know, the idea that they only unlock the door when they're having an event, you know, to me, that's a different sort of a feel. And perhaps it's your your percentage accuracy is a lot higher. <laughs> but but the net is right. It's much smaller. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... One of the things that I was accused of a, a few weeks back, um, based on what we were talking about um, on the podcast and, and sort of bringing up the, the idea of infrastructure, is the idea that infrastructure, the goal of infrastructure, is to, to create a dual power system. And this is actually a place where I totally disagree with, with what happened in the, in the 90s. The, the problem with talking about dual power is, is, so infrastructure, what I like about using that sort of bland of a term is that it allows uh, there to be an, a concept of the space where different people can can experience the space really differently. So, in other words, someone can come in for a cup of coffee or for an, an internet, uh, or to see what the announcement wall, what's on the announcement wall, or to pick up a free newspaper. But and they don't have to come in the back and talk to us for two hours about anarchist theory. Like for me, this idea that that infrastructure is a is a way to to have a an experience with something without having to, to having different levels of involvement to me that is, is, is extremely important and one of the arguments against keeping the door locked except for during meetings um, so that's why I like whatever why the, the long haul is organized the way that it is but I don't devote a lot of my energy to participating in it to be honest mm-hmm. um, and that's because I've chosen my level of involvement which is high so what I'm getting at here is to say that um, dual power is something totally different. Dual power is an idea of how do we um, use the things that we're doing in this world as a, a revolutionary lever to, to move into a, a different world. So specifically, the concept of dual power is to, is to basically emulate the things that are required for a functioning society and to practice them in the safe space of this pre-revolutionary world with the idea that come the revolution, these things will bloom. Yeah. And so, you know, this is the idea that, that food not bombs is not just a, uh, a way to help poor people eat in the, in 2016, but is, but is the sort of canteen of the revolutionary army that will seize the reins of power in 2017. And, um, and I, and I think all of this is, is when this came up as sort of like the discourse in the 90s, the, the reason why it sort of never really worked out and why there was a lot of failure associated with it, and especially a lot of failed info shops, is because nobody's ready. Nobody's ready to talk about the, this thing that we more or less do as a hobby, which is radical politics, as being the thing that we rely on to, to be everything for us. And partially why we're not ready is because capitalism has absolutely infantilized us. We, we totally understand what it looks like to go and spend $7 on a burrito. 
we don't experience what it would be like to spend the equivalent of, of time and energy on developing our, our relationships so that burritos were part of what were available to us. And, and the amount of thinking and the amount of collaboration and the amount of sort of healthy social life that that all implies is absolutely beyond what, what I, I know infrastructure or, or sort of it's, it's beyond belief. So anyway, so, so this idea that uh, to, to even sort of l- use the language of the 90s in the, in the context of infoshops info or, or to, to transform it in the, with the language of infrastructure is to imply that I am also, or that I think that it's an even intelligent to have a conversation around topics like dual power is just not true. I, I think that um, even if I were to agree with the politics that most dual power perspectives come from, which I do not, the idea that that the very small things in which we're capable of doing in this world are 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 able to turn into the very big things that something like dual power implies, I just don't have that naivete. You know, I think that might have come out of something that I said in an episode several weeks ago. I think I might have used that phrase. And so, the to be fair to the critic, that might have been something that came out of my mouth, and I didn't. Uh, I wasn't trying to articulate all the sort of baggage around it that you're talking about. But I guess, the, you know, the critical listener at this point, if I'm trying to imagine them and, and do the job of sort of interrogating you, would say, okay, so you've talked about infrastructure, you've blended it with your brand of Aragorn pessimism about the revolution, so if you don't see it playing that sort of role, then how is this something you were for? What exactly do you see? You know, I think that's where mindset wants to see, like, what's the outcome? What Right. Well, and, and that's why I mentioned first principles to begin with. If your first principle is basically that that the role of the anarchist is to, is to be a revolutionary agent, mm-hmm. then I'm absolutely not not speaking to you, sure. and and I'm not capable of speaking to you. <clears throat> if if the goal, if your goal as a practicing anarchist in the you know in this world is to assent, essentially attempt to live a daily life that is um, that is separate from the world that we normally experience, if your goal is to is to essentially attempt to live anarchy, whether it's in a cocoon, whether it's in parallel, whether it's in the shadows of the capitalist machine that's eating up most human lives, then 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 we're probably having a conversation, and this is part of my part of that conversation. In other words, to say that that I that I have decided that that I want to live a daily life that I that I enjoy that and that works for me and that that allows me to express my energy in interesting and useful ways and so how I've chosen to do that looks something like conflict infrastructure it looks like embedding people who disagree with me in my in my daily life and and mostly just trying to find ways in which we can do interesting things even though the world that we live in is it's not interesting and so so clearly in in my case it means you know after having figured out sort of like how to, how to live, like the logistics of living in a big city, it, the next step, without a doubt, was how to do interesting projects and how to make those those projects be what my daily life is about rather than survival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I, I detest about um, <clears throat> living with younger people who sort of haven't made this sort of choice is that... Um, is sort of the the idea of of living with doors closed, and in and in sort of you know currently not to complain about her living situation, but I hate coupled reality 
where you know all the emotional thing, all your emotional work and all your pleasure is associated with your relationship with one other person. And so this is to me, you know, the couple form I think is a is a sort of a destitute form. I, I despise it. And so part of this conversation around infrastructure is sort of how to how to live socially with people and not be so defined mm-hmm. by the couple form. And and obviously that's the thing I'm hating about. Our current living situation. <laughs> so obviously a lot of the kind of activity that you are talking about, um, saying that you want to, to fill your life with right now is media effort. And media effort, of course, being not just about the sort of small personal sphere of, of people who are not abstractions and are actually humans to you, but, but actually speaking to a, a much wider audience, including a lot of people who are abstractions. And this is something I want to take up in one of the next two episodes. So we could just sort of adumbrate what we're going to talk about, or if you want to respond for a minute or two about why that is something that you've chosen. Well, I, you know, I, I guess I, I don't have a big theory about it. I, um, I think that it's, it's a lot more aligned with my skill set than it is with my sort of belief so I think I came to media as an incredible consumer of media. So, um, you know, I started reading it at a very young age, and almost entirely what I've read for the first 10 years of my reading life was science fiction. And so there's something about imagination that I highly value, and, and especially imagination in the, in the context of being uncomfortable, right? Because the way I experience good science fiction books is for the first half of it, you're uncomfortable, in general, and and the second half is so, something about a realization process of like why the pieces fit together and why the story sort of matters, which usually only happens in the last ten percent of a book. And um, so this is why I continue to be excited about anarchism, even when a lot of anarchism is is, is not exciting. But is the is the idea that there that there can be this process, this this sort of story arc? I I, I really enjoy that and sort of as a lifelong thing. The, um, uh, but the other kind of science fiction is, is comfortable, right? Where you, you open up page one and you already recognize the characters and you already know what the story is. There's, and, and instead what you're going through is, is a sort of comfortable series of exercises in mm-hmm. nostalgia and, and familiarity and, and we're going to win at the end of this one. <laughs> um, and and that perhaps is is like some combination of the two of those things is why I've come into media as as like my project. Like one, I I really recognize these patterns and I and I appreciate them on you know in in different ways. And then you know I guess I do find that the people who also enjoy those stories are the people who I I feel affinity with, even if it's um, brief. Uh, there's also this question of how do you stay in relationship with people over time? Um, there's this, uh, there's, there's a lot of interviews and conversations with the the jackass who founded uh, vice vice magazine. And he's actually my age contemporary. Mm. And, and so I, so I sort of, and you know, and and he, his body type is similar to mine. So, (laughs) so it's hard for me not to, to totally ignore the fact that like, I might have some, some parallel experiences with him. He, He was a punk, um, but 
a lot of what's interesting about hearing him talk, and again, another similarity, is he seems to despise his audience. Yeah, yeah. I know uh, part of his deal is also he decided Canada was too socialist, and that's why he moved to the U.S., where you can really be who you are and not just be all on the same level as everyone else. <laughs> that says something about him. Yeah, I mean, it says something, but I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about sharing sort sure, of a sure, perspective. Sure. And, I mean, hearing him talk, he's, you know, it's not long before he just sounds like a fucking raging asshole. But but I recognize a lot of those characteristics in myself, mostly because, like, sometimes I'm sharing media not because I think it's that compelling, but it's because I am doing it for someone else. And, and you know, at this point, like, as A News has transitioned away from being a one-person project to being a group project... You know, one of the things that's happening a lot is I'm disagreeing with what the group is doing, and I'm thinking through what the consequences of that difference is. Like, for some people, they were never trusted the fact that A News was run by one person. Yeah. And, and, and now you're seeing sort of the opposite thing happen, where people don't trust this mysterious group, <clears throat> even, though, even though they would trust a mysterious individual yeah. if they heard the gossip as, as to who that person was yeah. and there's something in there that that i think is is really interesting in terms of like how people think about doing things so so i do appreciate this a way in which doing media projects is serving other people's needs in such a way that i don't feel gross about doing it because oftentimes when i'm just like when i do technical work for people for free sometimes i just feel like this is what charity feels like, and I don't like it very much. Yeah, and so this is a way in which I can feel like I enjoy and accept charity as I'm doing it. Want to say anything to end it up? Yeah, I think um, so this was part one in a maybe three or so part yeah. series about sort of what are you for and what do you like people do. And so I think maybe next week or the week after we'll do me giving me my spiel or me giving my spiel and Aragorn interrogating that and then maybe after that we'll do something like media yeah sounds great okay